Welcome to the Let's Talk Government podcast, a podcast that is provided for you by the Department of Government at Minnesota State University, Mankato, located in Minnesota in the United States. I am your host, Dr. Pat Nelson, the chairperson of the Government Department. I want to thank you for joining us as we explore different topics about government. Some may be surprising to you and some may not, so please enjoy. Welcome to episode 21 of the Let's Talk Government podcast. This episode, we're doing something a little different and have partnered with Pax Christi, which is a Catholic community in Eden Prairie, to be a part of their Justice Speakers series. Dr. Pat Nelson and Dr. Carl Lafada are guests for the speaker series, specifically their event, Law Enforcement and Racial Equity. The Law Enforcement and Racial Equity episode is moderated by Dr. Miriam Porter, who is from the Department of Government at Minnesota State University, Mankato, and Wayne Ward from the Pox Christie community. So enjoy as you listen to Dr. Carl Lafada and Dr. Pat Nelson from the Law Enforcement Program at Minnesota State University, Mankato, talk about law enforcement and racial equity. Let's go ahead and get started with the questions, Wayne. Okay. Uh, The first issue or focus area we'd like to ask our speakers to address is the uh, law enforcement education and practice past, present, and what the future looks like. So thank you for having me. I will start off here. Um, I am a product of the Minnesota Professional Peace Officer Education Program. So not only do I teach in it, but I, I went through it before I became a licensed officer in Minnesota. So in the 1970s, Minnesota created what's called the Peace Officer Standards and Training Board. It's legislatively created to oversee peace officers in the state of Minnesota. When the board was created, they also created what they called the Professional Peace Officer Education Program and required that you have a minimum of a two-year degree, which is commonly known as associate's degree, to be a peace officer in Minnesota. They accredited a variety of schools, um, mostly in the Min State uh, colleges and universities system, but there are a couple of schools outside of it as well. Um, As time has gone along, uh, there have been the development of four-year programs, and Minnesota State University Mankato was the first four-year program that was approved. Uh, We were approved in the 1980s, and so we have a long history of providing professional peace officer education. So why did Minnesota require that you have an associate's degree when most other states across the United States only required a high school degree? And that was historically because uh, the post board and the legislators realized that by having an associate's degree, you have some more maturity, uh, you get to have some formal education on critical thinking and decision making. And the professionalism was part of the professional movement in law enforcement. So that was our past. Uh, As we have gone forward, there have been changes to the Professional Peace Officer Education Program. Right now, we have about 483 specific learning objectives we meet within the program before somebody is licensed as a peace officer. There are multiple components to it. So we provide at Minnesota State University Mankato what's called the academic portion. They go through a four-year program, so they get a Bachelor of Science in Law Enforcement with us, and then they have to complete the skills or hands-on portion that is done through a community college. So what's the difference between a two-year degree and a four-year degree? 
we spend a lot more time on the theoretical level and we get further in depth into critical thinking and decision-making in the four-year program. Um, we have to cover all the same learning objectives, but again, we have a broader general education requirement. Um, I would like to think our students in the four-year program are a little more mature because they spent more time in higher education. Uh, and we really do have some good candidates. Now, as we look towards the future, and I sit on a lot of uh, committees about this because I'm heavily invested in this, we're still going to have a professional peace officer education program. Some things that are coming up in the future is standardizing the skills or hands-on training, um, ensuring that people are, our students are getting out with more experiential learning experiences within the community, um, and also just realizing their civic engagement and their public engagement outside of the law enforcement classes. I think that's where I see the future going. But I'm going to let Carl kind of chime in on what he thinks about the future of law enforcement education. Well, the history of it um, has remained actually relatively static. Um, law enforcement has been seen as more of a hands-on uh, job. It is one that has valued on-the-job training. Um, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. A lot of what law enforcement does is, is an, an actual skill that one performs, whether it's driving or writing or putting handcuffs on someone. Um, the idea of college-educated police officers or college cops, uh, really the first attempt, at least in this country for that, was when August Vollmer was chief of the Berkeley, California Police Department in the 1920s. And he was able uh, to recognize the value of uh, more highly educated police officers and uh, he reached out to people that were graduating from UC Berkeley that couldn't get a job because this was in the throes of the Great Depression. And so he had a chance to bring people into law enforcement that would never have given it an, uh, a thought because they were of upper middle class or upper class uh, backgrounds that were able to go at that time to, to college. Uh, prior to that, in the United States, law enforcement jobs were essentially uh, given to people as political patronage jobs. They were um, bought they were awarded. Um, I actually have somewhere in my files an, an old price list from the New York Police Department that talks about how much it costs to get appointed and promoted to what rank and so on. Um, and it wasn't until the professional policing era after World War II that civil service commissions were established and uh, in, in large, uh, you know, large metropolitan areas as well as some states. Um, Minnesota, as, as Pat said, came to the fold with their post board in the 1970s. And a lot of states did that after the civil unrest in the 1960s. And President Johnson's um, commission uh, report, The Challenge of Crime in a Free Society, came out and recommended in-service training and these boards and, and uh, higher education levels for peace officers. Uh, some states were, were a little bit on the uh, forefront uh, the state of Michigan, where I was a Michigan State Police Trooper, uh, the Michigan Commission on Law Enforcement Standards, uh, which used to be the Law Enforcement Officers Training Council, uh, they were established in 1965, uh, just after the civil unrest uh, in, in most parts of the country, but before the 1967 Detroit riots. Uh, and then the uh, California Commission on, on uh, Peace Officer Standards and Training was established in 1959. So... 
you know, some, some states went a little bit further um, in, in generally the more populous states uh, with, with a, a greater tax base. And so um, the idea of whether or not education helps is, is a peace officer performing their duty seems like common sense to many people, but the the, I think, desire for that uh, waxes and wanes over the course of time uh, and generally mirrors uh, a variety of factors like, you know, tax bases, uh, the economic conditions in the greater society. So, you know, if you have, for example, uh, we pushed for a little while to have the Michigan State Police uh, education requirement to be greater than a high school diploma or a GED. Now, most of the troopers came into recruit school with at least an associate's degree or higher, but the state civil service board would not entertain the idea of a higher educational standard because the rank of state trooper or the job title of state trooper would be classed as a profession under civil service rules and therefore the starting pay would be higher. Um, many states have a system similar to what Minnesota has though. And the reason is really has to do with tuition revenue. So in 19, in the early 1990s, when I finished my bachelor's degree in sociology, I could have completed uh, the tail end of that by attending a police academy uh, in California. Uh, you go to a six month police academy as a capstone at the end of your two year academy. So a lot of, or a two year degree program. So a lot of states do this because uh, they have a captive audience. If you want to go to a police academy or skills program or whatever you call it, then you have to take this prerequisite work. And then the capstone is this, this hands-on, you know, putting holes in paper and running around cones and things of that nature. And so even though Minnesota is unique in that they have a state requirement for a two or a four-year degree, many states have that as a de facto requirement because the community colleges um, control who, uh, you know, gets into those, uh, those programs. And so I don't see that changing anytime soon. Um, there is a huge difference between training and education. As Pat said, we try to focus on the more academic uh, coursework and hopefully the students uh, gain an appreciation for that. And what we try to convey to them is that knowledge will help them. Uh, general knowledge, you know, university education gives them a universal perspective and, and hopefully we can impart some of that on them. The, um, the future, uh, I don't believe, and this is my own personal opinion, but I don't believe you're going to see widespread higher education requirements for peace officers. If it was going to happen, it would have happened by now. Uh, agencies don't want to, uh, municipalities, I mean, and, and counties and state police agencies, they don't want to have to pay the higher wage that a college-educated peace officer um, requires uh, that would demand, you know, of the market. Um, now, Minnesota, the police officers get paid very, very well. And that's a reflection of the fact that they require the degree to enter into the profession. Um, you go down south, you go to, uh, you know, parts of the southwest, you go to the southeast of this nation, police officers are making barely minimum wage, the communities don't have the ability to pay for the uh, cost of a higher educated peace officer. The courts have upheld um, a, a requirement for higher education for peace officers. And in Michigan, we used, used to see that as a way to uh, weed out uh, candidates when there was a lot of interest in the jobs and a lot of applicants. Uh, but they've also upheld um, the fact that, you know, agencies can turn down a candidate if they score too highly on an aptitude test or they have too many degrees. 
And that's actually been upheld by the U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals, the second district. So, and that was back in 2000. So the point is, uh, is I think you'll see things remain relatively status quo from an education standpoint. Um, and then as far as training, every state's going to do it differently. And it's not like the fire service. Uh, every state wants to put their stamp on or give, give the training their flavor. Whereas, you know, fire service is based on science. You put the wet stuff on the red stuff. It doesn't matter. Fire is the same here as it is in South Carolina, as it is in New York state. Uh, and so there's a bit more uniformity there. Um, so I think you're going to see, you know, I think more of a focus maybe on, on training and things like de-escalation and new topics coming out, but I don't think you're going to see widespread increase in the, um, in the educational or widespread improvements in the educational minimum standards for entry and in-service training simply because uh, money and tax revenue and things of that nature are finite. You're muted, Miriam. Okay, when we think about the um, practice of police, um, what changes have we seen over the decades? And uh, this question really relates to my experience in local government management. When I started in the 80s and 90s, um, it was protect and serve. And then the philosophy has kind of uh, evolved to be more the warrior, you know, uh, to uh, fight it out or protect oneself first. And um, so, does that represent what you see in law enforcement, um, Pat and Carl, that that evolution of philosophies um, as far as the practice that um, officers in the field are engaging in? So I'll jump in on this first. Um, I know Carl has a lot of opinions on this as well, but yes, there has been a change and, and there's a couple of reasons why there's been a change. But before I get into that, let's talk about the 1980s. The 1980s is where women, uh, the late 70s and the 1980s is where women really got a foothold in law enforcement. Um, uh, many of the first classes of female officers, like in, for example, in Minneapolis was right at the end of the 1970s. I think 1978 is when they had their first female officer graduate the academy. And so we saw the growth of women in law enforcement, but then it plateaued. If you look at law enforcement in general, women make up about 12 to 14% of law enforcement agencies across the board. Um, and it's the same with many of the diverse group, ethnic groups, uh, racial groups, is many of them hold at about 10 to 15% if there is that much representation in there. So that doesn't always reflect the community. But when we look at philosophies in law enforcement, a lot of it's driven by training and what training is available. When we talk about the warrior mindset or street survival, street survival is one I went to, you know, as hyped up as the training to go to, to, to hone your skills as you're working the streets and combating drugs and fighting gangsters. And, and it really took away from the community policing aspect but if you look at where the federal funding comes from or the funding within the cities comes from is if you could get funding to cover training and it was focused on, you know, drug intervention, or if it was focused on gang intervention, then the feds would pay for it and departments would jump on that and do that training because it covered some in-service requirements. They didn't have to pay for it. They could get their officers through training. The officers usually were interested in it because it was something different that was going on. 
and then the complete community policing initiatives that might have been funded within the department didn't really have that training component. It was, we'll fund a community policing initiative, but you got to come up with it. And when you throw that on agencies, they would do what they thought was best or what maybe the latest trend was in community policing. Um, I was in Minneapolis when uh, New York was doing ComStat. And, you know, New York and ComStat is really heavily studied. It, it was not as successful as when they first started talking about it. But, you know, somebody went to a chief's conference and heard about ComStat and decided to bring it back to Minneapolis and they called it Code 4 and used that same kind of system. Did it help? Not really. You didn't really see a change in crime. You saw some changes in community policing out of it. But because they modeled the New York model, what was working or what was perceived to be working in New York did not work as well in Minneapolis because everybody has a different culture. And granted, some of the other agencies around Minneapolis didn't use anything like that because, again, they had a different culture. They had a different population. So I saw a significant change um, in just what training we would go to, what training was encouraged when we were officers and sergeants, and then what we encouraged our officers to focus on in the department and with the surrounding agencies. But I know Carl, this is, this is his area, so I'm going to turn it over to him on that one. Well, I think it's an interesting take uh, in terms of the demographic uh, makeup of law enforcement as a whole. And you're right, it, there, there is uh, a bit of a difference. My agency, the Michigan State Police, my, my uh, main agency uh, where I was for nearly 15 years, um, that agency even today uh, is almost 95% Caucasian, 92% white male. Uh, not a whole lot has been done to diversify the ranks, but um, I think we'll talk about that, the, 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 the excuse me, demographics later on. The, uh, I think the thing that's interesting uh, about where this warrior mindset came from is really a reflection of government's focus at the federal level, not so much in the terms of grant money, but the language that's used. So think about Lyndon Johnson. You know, he talked about the war on poverty. You get into the Nixon era. Now we're talking about the war on drugs and the war on drugs was manufactured to target uh, communities of color and, uh, you know, anti-war anti protesters. And there was a variety of things that, that really uh, conservative politicians uh, generally like to traffic in fear. And in the 1980s, with the U.S. still a predominant superpower, the only thing that we could really be afraid of, other than the, you know, the Red Menace and the Russians, was our own internal strife with things like drugs and and so, you know, the Reagan era uh, led to, uh, I think, more weaponization of law enforcement. And then you get into, you know, this, this, all of a sudden, we just came into the community policing era. Well, for the preceding however many decades, we were talking war, war, war. Um, and I think the reason that was tempered even back then was the fact that the, you know, the vast majority of police officers, well over half, were veterans of the military and they understood what being a true warrior was. And it wasn't this cartoonish cliche, I watched Full Metal Jacket once and I know what it is to be a soldier. You know, we, we know that I was a basic training unit commander uh, for my last job in the military. It was nothing like what you see in the movies. I mean, you know, it's, it's again, it's a caricature, a cartoon caricature. And so we started recruiting people that didn't have this military background and somehow we were trying to instill in them things like discipline and 
you know, just just having that that um, presence that a police officer needs in the field. And so they develop these warrior mindset trainings and these these you know uh, get tough sort of trainings that we were sending these these literally these kids that just wandered into law enforcement from suburbia that had never had any experience in confrontational situations. Um, and how those programs are designed to work is to scare the police officers into believing that, uh, you know, everyone's out to get them and you have to respond with greater force than they respond to with you and so on and so forth. And to the point, it's gotten to the point now where, for example, California Post will not allow officers to go to the street survival seminars. Uh, They're not post approved. And so California officers that want to attend have to go to Nevada, where apparently there's no rules for anything. It's kind of like the Florida of the the West. Um, Anyways, but all kidding aside, the the, you know, the lack of, I think, veteran um, status for these these folks coming into law enforcement really has kind of given them a warped view of what a, a warrior, you know, is supposed to be. My job as an artillery officer was to blow stuff up. My job as a state trooper was to protect, preserve, and defend. Very, very different. Um, and so you have people that, that have a very kind of skewed idea of what a warrior is. And then you couple that with the federal government giving them carte blanche on all sorts of military weaponry that they absolutely do not need. You know, yeah, you have the rare case where a SWAT team needs a Bearcat anti, you know, uh, uh, armored personnel carrier rather. And, and they're, yeah, granted that, but um, we're giving these officers more military grade equipment. We're giving them uniforms that look like battle dress uniforms. We're giving them this idea that, um, everyone's out to get them. They're 21 to 23 years old with the first time they've had authority and responsibility in their lives. They've given weapons in a souped up car, you know, what could go wrong? Um, And so I think all of this kind of summing it up, all of this has to do with, it creates a culture of fear. And when people are fearful, they're reactionary. When people are fearful, they embrace the the tenets of the perceived group. And this is why that thin blue line, us versus them, is so predominant. It is a direct reflection of the fear I think a lot of officers feel because they have been told to be fearful. You know, I thought it was very interesting when Minneapolis uh, mayor uh, said that they weren't going to pay for warrior mindset training any longer. The union stepped up and said, we're going to pay for that. They never said we're going to pay for legal update training. They never said we're going to pay for EVOC, which is emergency vehicle operations training. We're going to pay for, you know, report writing training, arrest control. No, we're going to pay for it. It says a lot when an agency or officers within an agency believe that the most important thing in, in their training repertoire is warrior mindset training. It says a lot with how they regard the public. And that's not necessarily a good thing in that case. And sorry, Pat, didn't mean to bash on Minneapolis, but it's it's a it's an interesting observation coming from, you know, myself. You know, the agency that I worked for, our job was to to go in when when part of our job was to go in when the when the local agencies uh, needed backup because something got out of control. And so the state police would would go in and, and we would we would supplant the the local PDs. And many times when the locals lost control of situations, it was because they were too heavy handed with, uh, you know, a particular incident or just in general, and the public had enough and pushed back. And so we would come in and, and kind of be that, well, you know, everybody kind of step aside and, and we would, uh, you know, run uh, police services in that community for a bit. So, um, yeah, 
I hope I answered that. <laughs> and I, I'd like to jump back in here because I am a multi-generational law enforcement officer or was when I was in law enforcement. Um, Carl has that too in a different perspective. But when I, I mean, I'm, a, I'm a fifth generation. So when I would talk to my grandfather about law enforcement, you know, his perspective on how he policed was very much about being a part of the community, right? They, they didn't go to warrior training, but they had a lot of veterans on the police department. When um, I didn't get a chance to talk to my dad about this, but my mother was a police officer. And we would actually argue over the dinner table because she worked North Minneapolis when she was a younger patrol officer. I worked North Minneapolis when I was a patrol officer. And we would argue about how to respond to things because, you know, when you add that 15 to 20 years difference in there about when we were responding, we had different training that went with it. And we had different perspectives on it. So, I mean, it, it definitely is a difference in training. Um, I'd also like to mention, I did talk about CompStat from New York. It, that is a, a computer-aided program that they had that you would, they would weekly put out the crime statistics for an area and bring in the commanders for each area and ask them, what are you doing to address the specific crime? So literally they would interrogate the commanders of different areas of, you had a 2% increase in auto thefts this week, what are you doing to address that? So that, that's, that's kind of the overview of what Comstat was. So that's what they did it for code for as well. So I just wanted to kind of jump on that as well. So. Interesting thing in with the, uh, with Comstat too, is, is it resulted in a lot of the police command telling their officers to take liberties and make bad arrests so that they could meet their, their quotas essentially. Um, to give you an example, how long ago Comstat was started, the reason Comstat people, they, oh, it stands for computational statistics and all the Comstat computer statistics is all it's, it's basically, it was an MS DOS and they could only use an eight character name for the file so it was on a floppy disk with the name comstat that's where that came from um but but yeah I, piggybacking what pat said about the history my dad was detroit pd in 1965 and when he got out of the academy he was given brass knuckles department issued a tommy gun a lead sap which is a piece of lead wrapped in leather that you'd hit somebody on the side of the head or the neck with to make him uh, pass out um and when you know, I would tell him about some of the things that I would do in the communities of color that I would work. He would say, you don't call those people, sir. He says, you take your name plate off and put tape on your badge number so they don't know who you are. That was the Detroit way. And when we worked in Detroit, we had, as troopers, we would have almost as much an obligation to protect the the suspected criminal from DPD as we did from, you know, anything else in the community. <laughs> So it was a very different, very different generational world uh, that, that he and I both, you know, worked in. Well, I, I didn't realize we had blue bloods among us, uh, that you two were coming from families of law enforcement, too, with the, that rich history. Um, what you've been talking about as far as education and practice is going to lead us into more discussion a little uh, in another topic area. But I would like to move into um you know, the circumstances um, as far as race. And um, first of all, in our programs or in programs, what percentage of um, students are we seeing of color um, or minority students? Um, are we seeing, you know, I, I think Pat, you'd mentioned earlier that things have gotten stagnant or we've kind of settled in 12, 14%, but yeah, that, that's actually pretty common is we're about 12 to 14% diverse students. 
Um, so if you add in females, then we get up to about 20% because uh, there are definitely a variety of diversity among our females, but about 20%. In the state of Minnesota, that is very common. The only school that's really outside of that is our Minneapolis Community College has a larger diversity population. Um, but other than that, we're all about 15 to 20% of diverse if you include female. Okay, does greater uh, representation of minorities uh, bring about greater racial equity? Can we say that? And, you know, again, what comes to my mind is in looking at the, now we're not getting into specific cases, but just observations about the George Floyd case, two of the officers, arresting officers were minorities and the police chief of Minneapolis is a minority. So I'm trying to wrap my mind around this as far as does representation of minorities impact our policing for greater racial equity? Well, there's, there's a lot of different ways to look at it. Now, there was just a recent study of Chicago PD just came out um, a couple of weeks ago that basically found that uh, Chicago PD officers of color uh, use their discretion more. In other words, they went to the same number of calls, but they used uh, arrest or citation uh, less frequently to the tune of 20 to 30%. Uh, yet there are other uh, studies that indicate no difference. In other words, that when a person of color becomes a police officer or uh, someone from another underrepresented group becomes a police officer, they find it more beneficial to assimilate into the group culture. Um, for example, uh, in 2015, Freddie Gray was killed in Baltimore. And that is an agency that is 43% or was 43% uh, black at that time. And so, you know, having that extreme, and that is extreme in law enforcement, an extremely high number of uh, officers of color is, you know, didn't change that, that attitude. And Baltimore PD has had a number of issues that have come out with, you know, officers uh, lying, planning evidence, things of that nature, targeting the exact same communities that one would think, you know, these, these, you know, very racist white officers of history is any indication would have otherwise targeted. And so the idea that, um, you know, greater diversity would, would help, um, you know, it's it's really not as easy as that. Now, one of the things that that I think does help diversify is higher educational standards, because in many cases, and this is actually what my research has reflected, in many cases, uh, people of color that that get higher degrees or, uh, you know, and, and go into law enforcement, they want to go to an, an agency or a department that values uh, education. And so they would be more apt to go to an agency that has a four-year degree requirement, uh, or at least a two-year degree requirement than would uh, one that, that would not, even if an opportunity presents itself. Um, on the, on the external side, from the citizen side, uh, it's extremely important to have a diverse workforce because in, in law enforcement, because the police department is otherwise seen as an occupying army. It's, you know, a, a bunch of, you know, uniform looking white males going into a community that ha there's no connection there. It's very difficult to make a connection because none of the officers uh, look like the people in the community. So it's like the community doesn't have a chance at, at, at being a part of that organization and therefore they don't connect. Plus, if it's a community that has, uh, you know, immigrants, for example, 
uh, you know, in Minnesota, Somali, Hmong, what have you, uh, there is um, less cultural awareness, right? Because there is less uh, opportunity to learn, the officers to learn internally. And so, yeah, it's a great thing from a community relations standpoint. And you would like for a police department to have demographics that mirror the community it serves because, you know, I could talk to you about an hour uh, about this for an hour or so about why this is beneficial. But the point is, is that um, depending on how overwhelming the culture of that agency is and depending on how much value that recruit puts into assimilating into the department's overarching culture will determine whether or not they feel free to, to use their discretion, uh, you know, in, in a way that benefits the citizenry. Uh, and, uh, you know, if, if they feel as though they will not be singled out for doing so, because the other problem is if we just start taking onesie twosies of, of whatever demographic group the chief wants to hire, then it becomes very difficult to, to recruit because that person feels like they're, they're a token. And the reason I know this is because I've talked to people of color that wanted to apply to the Michigan state police, where, you know, when you look at a recruit school graduation photo it's like a where's waldo trying to find you know anybody other than a white male you know and um and they they would be hesitant to join the agency because they didn't want to feel as though they were a a token or if they got promoted within the agency it was only because of versus who they were so it's actually um a very complex issue. And because it is so complex, it is relatively difficult to recruit people from outside of the traditional middle-class or upper middle-class white male. And then I'll just kind of piggyback on this a little bit. And, and, you know, we saw this in Minneapolis when we started having a larger Hmong population move into Minneapolis, you know, then they started, we, we wanted Hmong officers and that was good because you could connect with the community, but our Hmong officers also didn't want to be pigeonholed, right? They, they were hired by Minneapolis. They weren't hired by a specific neighborhood in Minneapolis. And they didn't want to have limits put on or ceilings put on their abilities to work around the city. So just because they were Hmong didn't mean that they should be the only ones going to a Hmong call. Um, we saw that with our Somali police officers. We had the first Somali police officers in the state. And they got assigned to Cedar Riverside, where there was a large Somali population. Well, after a little while, they wanted to be able to do more things than, excuse me, than just be the police for the Somali people. You know, so it is, it can be a danger to do that. I mean, we saw this with female police officers and we still see this today. Oh, well, we have a female police officer. She can go take care of the sex crimes report and she can take care of the sex crimes victim because she's another female. Well, that's not all, right? That's not all the female police officer can do. They should be able to do everything else that an, an officer does. So you can see how that can be pigeonholing. But on the other hand, if you have no representation, if you are just literally an agency of white males, then how can you truly be a part of the community and responding to the community? So it is that double-edged sword. And whenever you first see the first of anything hired in a department, they have to find their way right? They have to find what they want to do. They do a lot of assimilation. Um, if you look at current, the current chief, Chief um, Arandondo, he was part of a group of uh, Black officers that sued the city of Minneapolis for discrimination. And to see that he's the chief now is great, but how much has that culture changed in that time? And how much assimilation has there been? 
And do you still have that strength of, of, of camaraderie, camaraderie between those black police officers? Or have they been seen as an out group or are they part of the in group? There's a lot that goes on with that. I'm, I'm never going to be against making sure we have a diverse workforce in law enforcement, but you can't also just put it on their shoulders. Um, I've been, I've been with officers that are African-American that were called horrible things, you know, being traitors, um, going against their people while we were out on a riot line. And I've, I sat and listened to what they were called. And it's just, it amazed me that they would just sit there and take it. But on the other hand, I was called things too, just because I was a female. So it doesn't automatically give you an in with the community. It, it really doesn't. And you actually have to build those relationships no matter what you are. Um, if you're a female, male, it doesn't matter your race or ethnicity, you need to build those relationships too. You can't just rely on your diverse officers to do that. You know, and that's one of the things I talk about in, in my race and diversity class. Well, first of all, I always joke with the students, nothing like a short-haired white guy teaching about race and diversity. But the that aside, you know, one of the things I talk about is white privilege, you know, because that's a topic that has to be covered. I said, you know, here's a, here's a privilege that I have as a white male. If I screwed up on the job as a cop, nobody goes, oh, my God, look at these white male police officers. If a female officer screws up or an officer of color screws up, well, see, this is what we get for just taking any old person blah 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 off the street and they're that burden weighs so heavy because they could be just as competent as any other officer on the department but they feel as though they have to speak for not only every officer of color in that area but also that that in that community and it is a burden that i as a white male don't have to to, to, to bear okay so uh, some excellent points here um one piece that um, I have honed from what you've been saying, though, is I'm trying to put pieces together to what's going to help us to make a change and what, what's gone wrong um, is that education, higher education might be one of those pieces to bring us to the next level. So what percentage of um, officers have college degrees right now? And how many are coming out of Mankato? Mankato is a big program, but what percentage are um, have degrees? Do you have a feel for that? And, and how yeah. many might be coming out of Mankato? So right now there's about a thousand police officers in Minnesota. It's really close to that number. And um, the last ones before the 1970s have actually retired. So right now, everybody in Minnesota, except for maybe a handful I don't know about, have at least an associate's degree because they fall under those post rules that were created in the 1970s. Um, we graduate about 100 officers a year. So we have 18% of the workforce have graduated from Minnesota State University, Mankato. Um, most of them have two-year degrees. Uh, overall, 25% have a four-year degree. Now you might think that that's, that's really small, but you have to realize most agencies in Minnesota are smaller agencies. Uh, Minneapolis has an authorized strength of 800. They're the largest agency but most of them have officers uh, that are either 15 or less officers. So that's why we have uh, such a, a large spread of that. So yes, we do have 18% of the workforce has graduated from Minnesota State Mankato. And again, about 25% have a four-year degree, whether they got it before they started the job or after the job. And nationwide, the stat is closer to 40% of agencies that require some college. 
And it's a little bit misleading because, as I said before, in many states, not not all, but many states, the community colleges run the Academy or Skills program. So the officer by default is going to start with an associate's degree. Um, I know that uh, I just happened to check the chat and Martha had a question about uh, veterans uh, being held to the same degree standards uh, in states that require you to attend a, uh, an academy uh, or a skills program, then yes, if you are lateraling in somehow, there are some states that require you to lateral in or that allow you to lateral in with uh, experience as a military police officer, even though the jobs are divergently different. Military police today is not like it was, you know, they're without getting into the technicalities of it, they're essentially army military police today are essentially a, a more heavily armed mechanized infantry unit. That's what they are. They're not cops running around on, on the bases and making traffic stops anymore. That's the department of defense has their own civilian police department that does that. Um, and so if you have somebody who did say six years as an infantry, uh, as an infantryman or somebody in, uh, you know, any other brand or, you know, service, uh, Marine air force, whatever, um, they would still have to come, uh, they would come back to Minnesota and they would have to go through a two or four year degree in a skills program, just like anyone else, uh, aside from, again, those, those exceptions where some states would count military police uh, experience, you know, the training has to be the same because the liability would be enormous. Uh, for those agencies, if they just took some guy, let's say some, some guy from, from, you know, his deployment in Afghanistan, gave him a badge and a gun and here you go. Believe it or not, that's what used to happen. And we found that that's not necessarily the case. Yes, military people and, you know, we tend to be very disciplined, very work, uh, you know, have a good work ethic, that kind of thing. But the job of, of a police officer today is so much more civilian uh, oriented than, than uh, military oriented, you know, I think the only reason we haven't gotten rid of the ranks is just because we don't know what else to call each other, you know, but otherwise it's a civilian organization now. Um, and so basically that assimilation process for the veteran is one that essentially gets them, you know, used to working in a civilian environment where the military is you know, obviously a different, different place. Um, but as it pertains to some of the other things that we've talked about in terms of getting education uh, to be the standard, you know, I came into the Michigan State Police, there was 110 of us in our recruit school, and I was one of two master's degree holders, and they looked at us like we were just like, the, like why are you here? And, you know, because it just wasn't required, you could, you could have gotten in with, with much, much less. Um, and now agencies see the light of day and they're using uh, graduate degrees. For example, if you wanted to send to the rank of lieutenant or higher, you, you know, you, you need to have a master's degree. Um, but otherwise, uh, you know, it's still because they need so many people. And I'll, and I'll throw one more thing at you here. Um, the Michigan State Police, it prides itself on its recruit schools. It's a 20, it's now a 28 week school in-house six days a week. They are so desperate for people now that I just found out from a friend of mine, they're going to do the unthinkable and allow laterals from other agencies to go to a, a, a um, abbreviated recruit school. And that was never allowed in its hundred plus year history. Um, and so now, um, you know, we had to lower the standards a little bit to, to get more people. And that, that is, I think, something that you're seeing across the board. Yeah, they're going to pass the same background. Yeah, they're going to, they're going to be, uh, you know, 
people that that have the modicum of 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 education training necessary but having that extreme amount of training that used to be the mark of a michigan state police trooper they just can't do it anymore they just can't get as the number of people they need actually can i mary before you talk can i just jump on the question that came up in chat here um do the best and brightest graduates tend to head to the suburban forces no Everybody that goes into law enforcement kind of has an idea of where they want to work, right? I knew I wanted to work in Minneapolis. And it wasn't because my mom worked there. It was because I knew I had the opportunity to work in multiple precincts. I knew I had a lot of opportunities to do, like, if I wanted to do canine, which I don't, I love dogs, but I didn't want to be a canine officer. But we had opportunities and we had a lot of training. And it was the largest um, agency in the state. So I knew that if I wanted to move up the ranks, I had a lot of opportunity to do that. Um, those that want to work in suburban agencies, maybe that was home, maybe that was there where they were comfortable, maybe they had a mentor or an officer they met there that they know, I want to work for that agency. Um, maybe they wanted to work for state, we have students that want to be state patrol officers, we have students that want to be DNR officers. So many times when a student comes into law enforcement, they kind of have an idea of where they want to work. I mean, I give Carl a lot of credit for being in the state patrol. I never wanted to be a trooper. I always wanted to work in Minneapolis. And when I said I work in Minneapolis, a lot of my students will go, well, weren't you scared the whole time? No. You know, just like people want to work for Chicago. People want to work for Oakland, California. So it's not always the best and brightest goes to the suburban agencies. It's where people want to go work is usually the, 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 where they kind of go off into. You'd look good in a hat, honestly. You, you, that's kind of a running gag. State troopers wear, wear their hats. And, and just to clarify, there's a big difference between a state police and a state patrol. A state patrol, like the California Highway Patrol or the Ohio Highway Patrol, they have a very limited range of what they do uh, in terms of basically traffic. Uh, whereas the Michigan State Police, New York State Police, Pennsylvania, uh, we are full service. And so we're a little more like the Mounties. We get dropped into an area and we're it for law enforcement. So you do your own investigative work from day one. You do traffic on the way to other calls and so it's it's a very kind of a different mindset and so the cool thing about that is I got a taste of rural policing but I also had to go into Detroit and Flint and I was posted out of Battle Creek which is where uh, Kellogg's and Post uh, had their headquarters and it had a higher per capita murder rate in Detroit or than Detroit at that time uh, I used to joke there were a lot of serial killers get it Kellogg's uh -huh. yeah. okay <laughs> mute him he's done now <laughs> <laughs> not yet, not yet. He hasn't quite crossed the line. <laughs> um, well, we're getting questions really that go into the next area that Wayne's going to introduce. So, um, and we'll continue to try to tie some of these pieces together. Okay, so we've been talking about the culture, and we want to change the culture, I think, to, to, to towards racial equity. How do we do that? What strategies can be used to change the culture? I think Carl's waving me on. I'll start with this. Okay. There are things we can do in higher education to start the change. So I'm going to start there and then kind of move over into an organizational culture. So what we can do in higher education is definitely instill um, ideas about ethics, about good decision making. 
we can actually start working on that us versus them idea by exposing our students to interactions with people that are different than them in situations that are not crisis situations. What I mean by that is if you are, if you have a student that's come in that their only real life interaction has been with people that look like them. And all they think is that if somebody is a black or African-American person is everything they've seen on the media, that's how your interaction is going to go. That's not healthy. You know, we are all people. And if you base your, your knowledge and your decision-making on things you've seen on the media, or your very first time you've interacted with somebody from a different race is during a crisis situation, and then you carry that stereotype forward, that, that's not healthy and it's not gonna help build relationships. So we can in higher education, through our general education, through experiential learning, help expose people to different people that think differently than them, that have lived differently than, than them and have been raised differently than them. We can also encourage the culture of asking questions and not just blindly following authority. Um, and I know Carl spends time on this. I spend time on this. Uh, and then the last thing is to combat the media images. If we did law enforcement like the TV shows did law enforcement, we would be in so much trouble. In fact, in my one class uh, that we call Mindset right now, I spend half of the semester combating media. You know, you know, we're not like criminal minds where you can just kick in the door, put a gun to somebody's head and say, uh, you know, just make the wrong move or confess your sins, that type of thing. There's a lot of things we have to follow. And we still have to also combat some of the media of what is perceived as news or social media. So we, we can do some of that in higher education. We can also um, help with the organizational cultural change by getting our office, our newer officers in there where they can ask good questions. We can have maybe some active bystander training, which is asking questions without being accusatory, without seeming like you're always questioning authority, but also understanding why they're doing things. Um, before I get off here, can I describe experiential learning? That is where people go out in the community and either do community events with people different than them. Experiential learning is where they go take the knowledge that they've learned in the classroom and apply it. So, you know, our skills is experiential learning. Uh, we're trying to work on a course where people will go out and maybe help host community events. Internships are experiential learning. So, so there is some things we can do with cultural change. But it can't just be our students that are coming in as brand new officers being the only ones that change the culture. And you can't just have a brand new chief or a chief come in and say, that's it, we're changing the culture. You have to get everybody in the organization on board to change the culture. So, Carl, that's, I'll turn it there. Yeah, that's, that's um, really a great, great springboard for me um, because I spent a lot of my time in law enforcement kind of, and then just, I found myself in those types of situations kind of speaking truth to power. And if you Google my name at Pacific Grove, you'll see me, you know, in a suit and tie, bad mouthing my chief, who was a very shady individual. And, uh, um, yeah, she, she, uh, she and I did not get along. She did a few things that, that I would consider to be, um, not right. And I certainly let, let people know about that. Um, I dropped internal affairs complaints on command officers in defense of, of an officer. We had an LGBT officer that was being uh, harassed and she confided in me. Um, 
you know, I've, I've had, you know, where situations where I've had to help, uh, you know, build packets to get officers terminated. Um, it's not fun. It's very difficult. And I was a union rep uh, in California and in Michigan, you know, just essentially a supervisor doing those kinds of things to clean house and get the folks out that shouldn't be there. And, you know, part of the reason I never promoted beyond sergeants because I didn't want to. Um, I didn't join up to, to be a carpet cop or a cubicle cop. You know what I mean? I, I wanted to stay uh, in the field. In most places, when you pin that gold badge on, uh, you are you are effectively no longer a police officer. You're, you're a manager. Um, but, but the point is, is that I continuously pushed back against those negative aspects of law enforcement culture. And, you know, um, some people, you know, respected that some people, especially the command officers, um, you know, had some difficulty with that. But if you are complying with law and policy, you are always going to be in the right. And the luxury that I had was that I, I entered the business with a graduate degree and I got a graduate degree while I was, you know, my doctorate while I was working. Uh, so I always had kind of a plan B. And so I felt comfortable really kind of pushing back against that culture and, and, uh, you know, was able to, to effectively stay uh, true to my own sense of, of integrity and values and try to instill that in the officers to the point where, you know, Hey, if you have a problem, you come to me, we'll work on it. You know, if you see something, say something. And if you're, you know, I will always back you that sort of thing. But I didn't see that in a lot of supervisors. And this is the reason why these problems perpetuate uh, the, 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 the idea of staying true to the group, staying true to the group code is very powerful uh, for a lot of officers. And in many cases, it's not because they fear retribution, let's say, from their colleagues or they fear some sort of some sort of other reprisal. It's just they don't want a negative work environment when you're working with these folks 12 hours a day you know, six days a week, um, it's very difficult for you to go against the grain, you know, especially in smaller departments where like as a state trooper, I can't just go to another part of the state if I work for a municipality, uh, you know, pushing against that negative culture is is very difficult. And so what you see instead are officers that lateral, in other words, they'll go from one department to another to escape that negative work environment. Um, and, and uh, you know, it allows that person to go to a better fit, but it also allows that negative culture to perpetuate in those particular departments. And so um, it's very difficult to weed that out. And so what I tell students, you know, when they go looking for jobs to apply to, I say, you know, do ride alongs, talk to officers because officers love to gossip about other departments, you know, see if what, see if the culture that you experience and that you hear about meets your expectations. And, and we've had students that there's one I'm thinking of in particular that made his way all the way to the chief's interview, which is the final stage. And the chief was talking about the relationship with the community, the police community relationship and the, student was not comfortable with what the chief was saying. It was too adversarial. And he pulled his application and got a job with another agency that met his vision. And I'm sure that chief found someone who was, you know, in their image and likeness. And, you know, again, those problems perpetuate. So, uh, you know, the, the thing about all of this is that we wish there were easy answers. 
And there just isn't because law enforcement is essentially 750,000 sworn individuals, give or take, and they all come from the, 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 the broader society. And with that, they bring the same biases and bigotries and, and, and issues that society at large contains. Well, and I would also just say that, yes, uh, and this actually relates to one of the questions in here, every organization has their own culture. And both Carl and I encourage our students to figure out what culture do you want to be a part of? What organization do you want to be a part of? And make sure you understand what their culture is before you even apply. And as you're interviewing and ask questions about that, because yes, each one is unique. I mean, we used to always uh, give St. Paul, you know, there's always a rivalry between St. Paul and Minneapolis, uh, the two largest agencies in the state, but they had very different organizational cultures. And if you talk to people, they were either very, I, I really want to be like St. Paul, or I really want to be like Minneapolis. You'll hear that in the suburbs too. I know Eden Prairie and Edina, the cops in both of those agencies tease each other all the time. And you would think they're both fairly affluent suburbs of the Minneapolis area that they should be very similar and they have different organizational cultures and one is not better than the other. It just fits their organization. So yes, we can't always change that in higher education, but we can key in our students to make sure they ask questions about the culture before they get there and they understand what they're being a part of. How, how about unions? What role can and what role do they play in, in moving towards racial equity? Well, it, it's a double-edged sword again. You know, I was I was the president of the Peace Officers Association, my department in California, and, and um, they I got elected to that position, nominated and elected that position within six months. And so I didn't know whether to 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 shake hands or punch somebody. I really guess that was such a such a mess there because they were having such a a con uh, a confrontational uh, adversarial relationship with the city as it pertained to staffing and money and things of that nature. And of course we had issues with the administration. So um, I worked very, very hard to help get not only the, the economic benefits that the agencies uh, in that surrounding area had that we didn't, we're the lowest paid agency in that area, uh, but also to recruit the best and brightest, to recruit the, the uh, you know, a, a very diverse workforce. And without those economic benefits, it made that very difficult. And so what we did was we sold the culture. Um, and as the union rep, one of the things that I had, uh, union president rather than rep, it one of the things that I was able to do was really um, from, from the line officer side, really stress the culture of the agency as the majority of members wanted it to be. Uh, and so, you know, community oriented, working with the community, valuing diversity, you know, and it was a stark reality or stark difference rather in the reality of what we were talking about than maybe some of the other agencies in that area. Um, you know, what we focused on was I think somewhat different and it wasn't all about just the economic benefits, even though those were important. Um, if you have an organization that has a very adversarial relationship um, in you know, terms of being held accountable by the governmental entity, then, you know, that's a totally different ball game. You have a organization that is uh, the union pushing back against any attempts to be held accountable. And the interesting thing about 
law enforcement unions I've always found is that law enforcement agencies were created in the late 1800s, early 1900s to push back against, you know, a variety of threats. And I use my little air quotes there, a variety of threats. But one of them was organized labor. One of them was, you know, the communists that were trying to organize the, the workers. The Michigan State Police was founded in 1917 to go up into the Upper Peninsula and get the Finnish and the Welsh and the Italians back into the copper mines. So we were started as strike busters. Um, and, you know, the last line of the Communist Manifesto was workers of the world unite. And yet somehow law enforcement unions are seen as very patriotic as opposed to, you know, them being this anti-communist force, uh, police departments in and of itself. And so that's why law enforcement unions have never really been fully embraced by the labor movement in this country. They've always been seen as working for the benefit of their members and those who empower them and not for the greater good. Uh, because, again, when you're talking about arbitration, for example, uh, that process, um, it can, it's, it's seldom uh, effective for justice. The case that I'd give you as an example is a St. Paul officer Palkowicz case where uh, Brett Palkowicz was fired for kicking a semi-restrained individual. I won't go into the whole story, but kicking him multiple times in the ribs when he posed no threat to the officers on scene, flattened his lung, broke his ribs, there was a canine that was taking a chunk out of this guy's leg. Uh, the arbitrator, uh, Chief Axtell fired him. The arbitrator said, well, you know, he wasn't specifically trained not to kick a prisoner when they were down on the ground. That was it. So he gets his job back. He winds up getting convicted and indicted and convicted in federal court. This was back last November, and he's awaiting sentencing. He's looking at 10 years in the federal pen because what he did was so egregious. But the union and the arbitrator said, no, 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 give him his job back. And so, you know, it, it's a very negative thing for the public to see the fact that a police officer can do these heinous things and still retain their job. And, and what's more, be on paid vacation, essentially, while the investigation is ongoing. And so, you know, the unions are seen as facilitating this as opposed to, you know, doing what other unions do, which is, you know, the greater good for the labor movement and so on and so forth. So it's, it's, yeah, it's, again, a complex issue. Well, let's move it to, you know, we've talked about communities and let's, let's move to the community's role in shifting law enforcement toward racial equity. And um, this is something that the International City County Managers Association have, has done a survey. And this is very important in communities, but finding, finding the way to um, help shift that culture, and you brought up so many reasons why it's difficult to shift, uh, is what they are up, in, up against. So um, what are your thoughts about that? as far as um, the community's role in shifting um, law enforcement toward racial equity? Well, I would start out by saying the community's role is they need to be the ones demanding the shift. You know, they need to be the ones asking for it. They need to be the ones asking for accountability from their law enforcement agencies, not just their chief law enforcement officer, but all of their um, employees. And they need to be the ones that are identifying what they think the shift should be. Uh, we are used to having, you know, government, you know, our, our cities or our local government will say, okay, we're going to do this program to make things better for the community. 
And we have found, and Amiria probably can agree with this, that there that's not always the best way to do it because maybe the government doesn't know what the community needs. Well, if we're going to be talking about racial equity and expectations from the community, the community is the one that needs to identify that. I'm, I'm going to use North Minneapolis as an example here, just because I'm still in a lot of groups there. But when they were taught, when the defund the police came up this last, the last summer here, uh, there was very loud voices talking about defund the police. But if you were on a couple of the Facebook groups in North Minneapolis, you had many of the residents saying, wait a second, I don't agree with that because we still need some of our law enforcement here. And as they came together, various groups in North Minneapolis, in fact, a group above the educators up there, the principals of the high schools up there came together too, saying, wait a second, defund the police is not what we want. We would like to see other things happening, but we don't want you to take all of our police officers away. That was the voice from within the community. And they were the ones that were saying, we live here, we work here, we go to school here. This is what we would like to see in the future. And I think we need more of that, not just in large cities, but across all of our communities to actually get to a point where we do have the what the expectations of the community meant and that law enforcement can understand what is expected of them too. And I know I've used this example in, in one of the earlier podcasts that we've done, uh, but it's, it's just a favorite example of mine where uh, regarding defund the police, where a Washington Post reporter asked people in a housing project in D.C. about this defund the police. And they said, no, 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 we don't want to defund the police. Uh, in fact, we want more police. We need more police. We just want them to be better trained. We want them to understand their communities. We want them to appreciate us. We want them to be held to a higher standard. And that's really what, what we're talking about. You know, the defund the police movement, uh, you know, again, we talk about, uh, I talk about authoritarian leaders using fear as a motivating uh, device for their, their voters and their supporters. Um, and that's obviously nothing I came up with. That's uh, been, been proven over and over again over the course of history and was studied extensively after World War II. But the point is, is that what defund the police really meant to a lot of people was let's defund this aspect of law enforcement. In other words, let's take the example, use Eugene, Oregon as an example. Let's take the responsibility for nonviolent mental illness or drug or alcohol related calls and we'll give it to this organization that has trained social workers and medics that will go out to these calls and we'll take this money from your budget, but you don't have to do these calls anymore. That's defunding the police. That's what people are really, really talking about. I wish they would have chosen a different name for it, but I guarantee you, you talk to any police officer on the planet. Hey, would you like to deal with more uh, mental illness calls or fewer? You know, what do you think they're going to say, right? So what they're really talking about when it comes to defund the police is is uh, something that I think most peace officers, if not all police officers, could get, get on board with. And that's giving the responsibility for calls that don't re, don't need a law enforcement response to to um, to have that uh, to to have another option. And the other aspect is, you know, I think what the law enforcement community needs to understand is we work for the public. It doesn't mean you kowtow. It doesn't mean that you don't enforce the law. But as Robert Peel said in 1829, the people are the police and the police are the people. We are empowered by the people. And if we screw up and we are seen as violating that social contract where the public says, we're going to loan you this power and authority and we expect you to use it judiciously, if we 
are seen as not using it judiciously, then what happens? Well, laws are passed and court decisions come down and they said, you had this much power, now you have this much power. And they take that away from us. Um, and rightly so. And so, you know, I think what the public uh, needs to understand is just like, you know, I think it was Thomas Jefferson who said, you know, the government you deserve is the government you elect, you know, the police officers you deserve are the police officers you hire and the police officers you tolerate. And if you are unhappy with what's going on in your community, then you need to make change uh, by, by, you know, working with the local community leaders to get that law enforcement culture to change and if necessary, replace the chief. I've, you know, I've worked on that. It's, it can be done. You know, you can get the chiefs or they're at will employees. And if they are not doing something that is in line with community expectations, same with the prosecutors, vote them out and get the kind of law enforcement uh, culture that you want, because that individual officer, that 23 year old kid is not going to be able to do the same amount of change community activists can to, to, you know, diversify the workforce and have greater respect for the public and have a, a prosecutorial environment that reflects the concerns and the priorities of that community. You know, that we talk all a lot about the internal things and there's a lot of internal things we need to change, but ultimately um, the power is with the people and they can make a lot of change if they mobilize. Some good points. Uh, you mentioned the 23-year-old kid. This is the last point I'm going to bring up before we open it up to the uh, up for questions. But um, what can the 23-year-olds or the 20-somethings, the teens, be doing uh, to um, help to have a voice uh, in this cultural change? What do you see are some good um, uh, good places to focus their energy. I, I happen to have one of those 23 year olds who is uh, too often in the protest lines, which I don't like. I don't, you know, but that's that's what he does. He's been downtown Minneapolis every, every morning um, as the jurors are selected for the uh, George Floyd case. But what, how, how else could they be operating to um, be productive? Well, I would really encourage them to start getting involved in their local politics. You know, you want to support people that have the same ideas as you. So if you're that 23-year-old and you think it's important that law enforcement has some sort of reformation or that there's some um, demanding of accountability, when there are political elections and there are elections every year for different positions, that's where you put your support behind that person. Maybe you go out and door knock for them. Maybe you go ask them the hard questions at the town hall meetings about what is your vision for our law enforcement in our community. So that's a way to get involved without even costing money. I mean, you can go to a town hall, you can always give your time to be a part of that. You can also look for organizations that share your same values and um, join them, volunteer for them. They may need help just calling people. They may need help distributing literature. There are ways to get involved. You can be a community activist. You can get your point of view across. You can support those that share your same vision for the future without having a lot of money. Many times it's just time to do that support. I mean, and if you feel passionately and you want to be down on the protest line, make sure you know why you're there and make sure that they actually share the same vision as you, not that you might be protesting with a group of people that have a completely different vision than you. So make sure you know who you're with. That's my biggest uh, piece of advice there. 
For sure. And, you know, the the other thing you could do uh, is is get involved by going on ride alongs, um, citizens, police academies, uh, go to city council meetings where they're talking about police budgets or, you know, the chiefs love to get out there and, and crow about the arrest, uh, you know, ask questions about what was the demographic makeup of those arrests and out of those arrests, how many convictions did you get? Are you just pulling people off the streets on weak cases? You know, there was a newspaper report about the this carjack unit that they had in the Twin Cities and they arrested 46 people and what only six charges were it's whoa that's a horrible batting average you know let's let's learn more about that you know the news is getting a lot wiser in recent years by asking about okay you got the fish on the hook did you reel it into the boat right see I had to throw I'm not a fisherman so I had to throw a Minnesota fish reference in there (laughs) but but the point is is that you know letting the officers know that number one people are paying attention and number two that you know maybe there's that officer who doesn't feel that they can push back against the prevailing culture within that department then they start talking to people in the community and guess what the community's got the same view they do and that might embolden them to be uh more more uh you know just i guess resistant to those cultures to speak up on on a scene to to you know pull that individual you know officer you know hey you're kneeling on move your knee or something like that you know just just take those little steps to to correct those behaviors that's how this is going to change it's going to be baby steps it's not going to be this this you know blinding flash of the obvious where police officers like oh my god you mean i've been doing this wrong this whole no no no. it's going to be this gradual shift and it's going to start with you know just that 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 little nudge um and whether that comes internally or externally i'm here to tell you it's going to be a lot more uh, likely to have long-lasting impacts if the community is behind such changes thank you for listening to this episode of let's talk government if you have suggestions for future episode topics or other areas you'd like us to cover please visit our website at link.mnsu.edu backslash let's talk gov to submit your ideas Join us every Tuesday for a new episode and thank you for listening.